Lord, we thank you for the chance to come here and dive into your word. Uh, And we ask, Lord, that we would hear from you, that we would hear from the living God, that you would speak to us uh, by the power of your spirit. Lord, that you would use this text to, to change our lives, God, that you would challenge us in areas, that you would encourage us in areas, that we would recognize this isn't just a story in history, but this is a, a story that you want to use uh, in uh, the present day, specifically and personally in our lives, God. So speak to us uh, in, in a very personal way today, God. Uh, we we love you and we look forward to hearing from you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Uh, if you have been with us or you haven't been with us, uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts. Now, if you recall, the church has really taken off and it really started when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter two. And then uh, after Acts chapter two, after we see about 3000 people get saved, we see John and Peter heal this man outside the temple, specifically the temple gate called beautiful and they heal them in the name of Jesus. But we see that that healing wasn't just for this man specifically to be healed. The Lord was trying to get the attention of the masses, the multitudes that were there so that they could have an opportunity to hear the gospel, right? This guy got physically healed, but he was still going to die. And the Lord is more concerned with our spiritual healing than he is with our physical healing. Not that he doesn't on occasion heal people physically. We discussed that in Acts chapter 3. Well, this miracle didn't go unnoticed and the religious leaders get upset that John and Peter performed this miracle, not just because they healed this man, but because they were preaching in the name of Jesus, the man they just had killed several days ago, a little over 50 days at that point. So the religious leaders, they confront John and Peter, after they arrest him and they uh, threaten them and say, hey, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. It can't happen anymore. John and Peter say, we can't help but preach of the things that we've seen and we've heard. We're going to continue preaching the name of Jesus. Why? Because it'd be a sin for us not to preach the name of Jesus. So. John and Peter, they go back with their companions. They pray for boldness because they know that the religious leaders are serious about these threats and their lives are literally on the line. As the church grows, the gospel is preached. We see this unity that's inspired among the brethren, among the church. So much so that people are selling their possessions, they're selling their land and they're giving it to the church. And we end chapter 4 with this guy named Barnabas who would later become a, a, a very important leader in the church. He sells his land and he gives the money, the proceeds to the church. Well, in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they see what happened with Barnabas and how much honor and respect he gained. And they said, we want that honor and respect too. So we're going to sell our land, but we're not going to give all the proceeds to the church. We're just going to give a portion of it. But they lied and said they gave everything to the church. Peter confronts him and says, hey, 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 you didn't lie to man. You lied to God by lying to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. We didn't ask you to sell your land and give it to the church. You were just doing this because you're you're hypocrites and you wanted people to think you looked a certain way when you actually weren't that way. And we see Ananias and Sapphira, they actually end up dying. Well, 
we see the enemy was at work through Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, it says that Satan filled Ananias. So we see in Acts chapter 4, the enemy tries to attack the apostles externally by threatening them. And then in Acts chapter 5, we see the enemy tried to attack the early church internally by bringing division in the church. But it doesn't work. Why? What happens? says in Acts chapter 5 that, that the whole church, uh, they had the fear of the Lord. They were greatly afraid. They honored God. They respected God. In fact, what the enemy tried to use to divide the church, the Lord used to unify the church. And the church continued to grow and grow and grow. But the church keeps getting unwanted attention. So as they continue to preach the gospel, we see later on in Acts chapter 5, they're arrested once again and thrown in prison. This angel frees them. They continue to preach the gospel. So more than they get whipped, they're persecuted physically, but that doesn't deter them. That doesn't discourage them. At the end of chapter 5, it says they continue to preach the gospel. They continue to teach the gospel and many more were getting saved. That brings us to Acts chapter 6. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is that the early church runs into a problem. There's a problem in the early church. Specifically, the problem is in this passage is that there are widows that are being neglected. So the church, in a pursuit of unity, gets together to attempt to solve this problem. But the church isn't the only one with a problem in this text. The religious leaders got a problem too. What's their problem? Well, the church keeps preaching Jesus and the religious leaders told them not to. The church keeps growing. It's growing profoundly. And as the church keeps growing, these believers keep looking more and more like Christ. See, the church is going to solve a problem in this passage, but they're also going to cause more problems. The title of this teaching is Solving Problems and Causing Problems. Solving Problems and Causing Problems. See, the church solves a problem by finding a solution to take care of these neglected widows, but they cause more problems because they continue to share the gospel, attracting unwanted attention from the religious leaders. Okay, So the problem that they're causing is actually a good problem to cause. All right, And we'll get into that as we are introduced to Stephen and see what he does. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So we see, despite the persecution, the church keeps growing. It keeps growing, regardless of what the enemy tries to bring against the church, whether it's external persecution or internal uh, division, the church continues to multiply. We see these different groups of people in the church. There's Hebrews, they're Hellenists, and they got a problem. What's the problem? These specific widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. There are many groups of people in this verse, but the primary point of the verse is that there's a problem. This is point number one. Where there are people, there are problems. 
Where there are people, there are problems. We know this to be true, but sometimes it's hard for us to grasp it. It's the reality of our humanity. People bring problems because people have problems. We all have problems. We all have struggles. None of us are perfect. We're all flawed. So the more imperfect people you bring together, guess what happens? More problems you got. Okay. So as the church grows, guess what you got? You got more problems. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. This shouldn't surprise us. The more people we have around us, the more our church grows, we can expect there to be more problems. The sad thing is, is some of these problems aren't resolved. And people get discouraged by the problems that they have specifically, mostly, with other people. And because we come to the church, some thinking that it is a place that that perfect people, people that are holier than thou, uh, spend their time and then they get here and they realize, man, these people are a mess. They got problems. They got issues in it and it shocks them. And now my problem is is not just with the fact that there are problems in the church. My problem is with this specific individual. And I have this issue with this person. And this person said this about me or this person did this to me and, 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 and this person had an argument with me or they didn't see eye to eye with me. And you know one of the main reasons people leave churches is because they have problems with other people. And I get, hey, there are certain reasons, justifiable reasons to leave churches. You know, a, a pastor's not teaching uh, doctrinally. They're getting off the text and kind of doing their own thing. Uh, you may have different needs as a specific individual and things that you look for and things that you desire in a church. But the main reason people leave churches is because they have issues with people in the church. It shouldn't shock us that we're going to have issues with people in the church, but that we shouldn't allow that to inspire division in the church it should inspire unity it should inspire resolution i know the enemy's at work here and we need to figure out this problem let's hash this thing out let's make this thing work let's put our problems on the table give them to the lord and let's see what he does see these people they got a problem as i mentioned there are multiple people groups being mentioned here in the text we got Hebrews, Hellenists, and widows. Now, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, they're specifically referring to believers in this text. Okay, These were um, believers who were Hebrews, believers who were Hellenists. These are groups in the church. All right. So Hebrews, when they say Hebrews, they're talking about people that kind of stuck to the basic traditions of their fathers. They, they, they purpose to keep the law. They purpose to keep the feast. They, they stuck to some of these traditions. They had a more conservative outlook, okay, on, on their relationship with God. The Hellenists, well, they had more of a, um, of an inclina- inclination, uh, to follow down the Greek pathway of life. I can help you with a little history here. So after you had Nebuchadnezzar in in Babylon take over the known world, then you had Cyrus, the king of Persia, take over Babylon. After that, you had the Greeks led by Alexander the Great, and he took over the known world. So before Jesus came on the scene... The known world was occupied by Greeks before Rome took over. Okay, so you had this huge Greek influence in Israel. 
All right. You had a lot of Greek culture going on in Israel. The Hellenists were those that kind of conformed to the Greek culture. OK, they got caught up with this uh, belief called Gnosticism. Many of them where uh, basically you pursue knowledge to attain godliness. They uh, they they really got distracted by entertainment. They had a more liberal viewpoint of God. So maybe the best way I could describe this is it's, it's really like this. It's like Democrats and Republicans, for real. Like, that's kind of what it's like, okay? The Hebrews are very conservative, okay? The Hellenists are very liberal, all right? So now you got Democrats and Republicans in the church, okay? We need to solve the problems. We've got to make this work. We've got to inspire unity. See, the Hebrews, they looked at the Hellenists as if they were compromisers. You guys are compromising your faith. These aren't the traditions that our fathers gave to us from the Lord. And the Hellenists essentially looked at the Hebrews and said, you guys are are old school. The world's changing. Let's change with the world. Okay, these are the backgrounds of these people groups. But now they've been converted. Now they're Christians. Now they're following Jesus. But they have these traditional backgrounds, which some of these things will be addressed later on in the book of Acts. Apparently, as the Hellenists mentioned, there are some widows that were being neglected. Now, we remember that the early church was uh, being extremely giving and they were giving basically everything that was needed to take care of the whole body and not just the individual. But this also brings up an important thing to note traditionally. So the Jewish leaders, they typically had a daily distribution where they would provide for widows and orphans. Why? Because that was important to God. He wanted us, uh, one of the Hebrews to provide for widows and orphans. And they did it kind of with a wrong heart. It was more of like a self-righteous thing. Oh, I'm going to give and I'm going to be right in the eyes of God because of my works. Okay. But it appears what was happening was that the converts, the religion, uh, sorry, the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists that converted to Christianity weren't getting taken care of. So the early church started taking care of some of these people and specifically the Hellenists, they weren't getting taken care of. The Hellenist widows weren't getting taken care of by the daily distribution. This is a problem and this is a problem that could have caused a lot of division. In this moment, there's an opportunity. All right. We're going to have two denominations then. You got the Hellenists and you got the Hebrews. Okay, whatever. Okay, you guys want to take care of your people. We'll take care of our people. We're just different bodies in the bodies of Christ. They could have gone that route. They could have allowed the enemy's inspiration of division to hit home. And they just went with it. And okay, let's just separate. But that's not what we see the early church do. They're going to purpose to find a solution we see later on in this text that they're going to come up with a solution but this solution works in some sense but we see later on there were still some kinks to work out with the solution that they came up with and Paul's going to talk about this later when we get to first Timothy specifically in first Timothy chapter 5 if you want to write this down 
uh, verses 3 to 16. I'll kind of summarize it because it's a lot of text there. It's a big chunk. And he basically tells us uh, which widows should be taken care of and which ones shouldn't. Okay, He talks about a real widow, not that there were fake widows and real widows, like anyone that lost their husband is a legitimate widow. But when he says real widow, he's referring to those that basically fulfill the credentials to be provided for. One of the things that he brings up is he says, hey, if they still got children and their children can still take care of them, don't put it on the church to take care of them. Their children should be taking care of them. Okay, so let's not use the church as a, as a basically an excuse to get a handout if the children can still provide for them. That's one of the credentials. These widows were also believers. They were followers of Jesus. They also had godly character. There was also the expectation that these widows served in the church in some capacity. Okay? They were involved. Okay? They weren't just looking for a handout. They were plugged in. They were involved. They were helping out the church in some way. So Paul basically lays it out. Hey, here are the widows that we should be helping. And here are the widows that we shouldn't be helping. And that's something that you can study on your own. It's a very interesting section of Scripture. But there's a lot of wisdom in it. At this point, they're just worried about the widows as a whole. Okay, they haven't even got there yet. Okay, what's a real widow? What's not a widow? Uh, as we talk about who should be provided for and, and who shouldn't. Text goes on, Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wait a minute. Is this right or wrong? He said, it's not desirable for us to leave the word of God. These are the 12 apostles and serve tables. There are different debates about this. I'll give you my personal opinion. Now, Jesus did say, I did not come to be served, but serve to give my life a ransom for many. He showed the disciples what it meant to serve. He washed their feet. He died on the cross. He showed them what it meant to lay down your life for one another. He set that example. He truly was a servant. But there's also a reality that there are often in the church many people that can do a lot of things and only some people that can do certain things. What do I mean? You had 12 apostles. You didn't have 5,000 apostles, okay? You got about 5,000 people in the church right now. They all can't do the same thing. So the apostles had some responsibilities that they had to focus on. And because there were these problems entering the church, now people get neglected. They say, hey, basically we need to focus on the priority that God gave us to preach the gospel and make disciples. I think it's absolutely extremely important that a pastor or a spiritual leader never thinks that they're above any type of service, okay? I absolutely think that that's important. That a pastor or a leader has to have a servant's heart. But there's also the reality that in certain circumstances, delegation has to take place. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's say between services, I'm in the bathroom and I notice the toilet's leaking, okay? What should I do? Should I get on my knees and try to fix the toilet? Probably couldn't fix it anyways. Okay, it probably cost more harm than good. So I could do that, and I could be like, man, I know God's called me to be, I'm going to serve. And I say, hey guys, uh, uh, hold on, wait till I'm done fixing the toilet, then I'll get to the message later. Okay, should I do that? You guys are just waiting around all afternoon, not knowing when I'm going to come back or if I am. 
Or should I say, hey, I need help here. I, I need help. Somebody help me. Can somebody try to take care of this? Or can we close the bathroom down? Or whatever the case may be. This is where the disciples are at. They know God's given them a priority and they need help. They can't do everything right now. On another note, I absolutely believe the pastoral calling starts as a servant. Okay, God, when he called me to ministry, he called me to ministry when I was at Calvary House. You know what I was doing? I was pulling weeds. I was doing landscape. I was uh, landscaping. I was cleaning toilets. God didn't call me to be a pastor when I was preaching a message. He literally called me to be a pastor when I was serving. Okay, that's when he called me. Why? Because I think the Lord, he needs to give us the heart of a servant before he gives us the calling of a pastor or a spiritual leader. It's essential. It's it's crucial to the calling of any type of spiritual leadership. Now, overall, do I think this was a good decision by the apostles or a bad decision? I think it was a good decision. I think it was. And and we'll discuss that uh, a little bit later when we see the product of this decision and what happens because they made this decision. But the problem is really this. Yes, there's a problem with the widows, but big picture is the apostles got too much on their plate. They got too much going on. They're too busy to take care of the needs of everyone. Second point, busyness can be a problem. Busyness can be a problem. See, sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. We put too much on our plate. We add things to our life that we simply can't handle. And you know what happens? Things get sacrificed that we never intended to get sacrificed. And all of a sudden, ah, we don't know what our priorities are. And it gets confusing. Well, the enemy often does this in our life. He often tries to use this busyness thing to get us off course. If I can get you disciples focusing on serving tables, guess what you're not doing? You're not preaching the gospel and you're not making disciples. Enemy one. See, the enemy does this in our life as well. He tries to get us confused as to what our priority should be. What what does God actually want you to do? What's priority one, two, three, four, five down the list? He can shift those priorities around and get you so busy that you don't know what God's priorities are for your life. Guess what he's going to get you to do? Do things that you shouldn't be doing. Okay, Not that those things are bad or serving tables or whatever the case may be. But what's the priority? You ever get distracted by busyness? Ever get distracted by that? Like you're so busy, it's like confusing. Like I don't even know what I'm supposed to do today. I got so much on my plate. My to-do list is a month long and, and I don't know where to begin. There's simply way too many things to do. It'll happen to me sometimes. Doing my devotions and Jude starts crying and Jude needs to eat. And what do I do? Do I feed Jude? Do I go to, do I finish my devotions? Hey, I got to study for a message, but somebody needs to meet with me or somebody gives me a call. Wait, do I stop studying? Do I meet with, what do I do? I don't know what to do. So what do I do? Seek the Lord and I ask him, what do you want me to do? What's the problem? All these things need to happen. It's not like we can say something can't happen. Jude needs to eat, right? People need to meet. All those things need to happen. But what needs to happen right now? What's the priority right now? I don't want to get caught up with the confusion of busyness. And it's not bad to be busy, but we can often confuse busyness with spirituality. The more I got on my plate, the more spiritual I am. Not necessarily true. God calls some to be more busy than others. But what also happens is we add busyness into our lives. And we put things on our plate that the Lord didn't intend us to put on our plate. So 
Maybe something needs to go. Maybe something needs to get dropped. That's what's happening with the apostles. They know what their priority needs to be. They know all these things get, uh, can't be taken care of. So something has to go. We got to delegate one of these things. People ask me <clears throat> to do many things, many times, whatever it is, whether it's guest teaching or um, or meeting or or something with the property, and, and sometimes it's like, yeah, I know the Lord wants me to do it, and I know this is a priority, and I know I need to take care of this. And, and other times, I, I just simply can't do it. I just simply can't handle it. So what do I do? As I mentioned, I seek the Lord, and I ask Him, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to take advantage? Is this opportunity from you, right? Because every opportunity that's presented in our life doesn't mean it's an opportunity from the door, uh, from the Lord. Every open door doesn't mean that the Lord opened that door. Is this from you or not? Is this the enemy just trying to confuse me with busyness? Or is this you challenging me to get my priorities right? See, the apostles, I believe they did the right thing. They got, had their priorities in order. They took care of what they knew they needed to take care of. So they come up with a solution. Verse 3. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you Seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, meet, whom we may appoint over this business. They didn't say, we don't have time to take care of this. Hellenists, you go your route. Hebrews, you go yours. This might cause the division, but whatever. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. No, what did they do? They invited the church to be a part of the solution. Why? Because their heart was to take what the enemy was trying to use to divide them, to use that to inspire more unity in the church. That's point number three. Pursue solutions that inspire unity. Pursue solutions that inspire unity unity they didn't neglect the issue but rather they addressed it and asked the believers for input hey here's what we got to do we need people to serve we need people to step up and we need people to serve can you help us figure out which people those should be what does this do now the hebrews feel apart the widows feel apart the hellenists feel apart okay they care they care about the problems they care what we have to say they care about our input and now there's this unification thing that happens but he did it they didn't just do this either they didn't neglect the problem nor did they say we got it we'll solve the problem we'll take care of the widows they invited the church to be a part of the solution this was so wise. Not only does it inspire unity, but it also re inspires responsibility. Meaning, this is just as much your church as it is my church, okay? They might be the apostles, but they're all part of the church. It's not like one is more of a part than the other. So you want to point out a problem? Okay, help us come up with a solution. Why? It's really easy to point out problems, right? It's easy to point out problems. We can all do it. I can point out problems in the church, right? You could point out problems in the church. We can all do this. Point out, here's a problem, here's a problem. Hey guys, uh, here's a problem. You need to take care of it. In their wisdom, being filled with the Spirit, the apostles said, yeah, 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 that is a problem. But I want you to be a part of the solution. Anyone can point out a problem. It takes a lot more to come up with a solution and implement that solution. Be a part, again, of that solution. I have people come to me and point out problems all the time. Okay, it's okay. I know there are problems and there are problems that need to be addressed. But often they come to me with a problem with the expectation 
that I can add it onto my plate, right? Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. So they come, hey, I got a great idea. I got a problem. We need to address this issue. You know what I'll say sometimes? You know, that is a problem. You got a solution for that? You know, you should implement that. You should do that. I support you in that. Like, yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah, it's a good idea. That is a problem. We need a solution. Run with it. Take it and run with it. Why? Because it takes the whole church to be a part of solving the problems in the church. It's not just the leaders. It's every single member. This is why it's referred to as the body of Christ. But the apostles didn't just say, hey, go just pick out seven random guys. We don't want to think about this. No, they they had an idea of what was going to work. Okay, we need seven guys. And here are the credentials of these men that we need to serve in this capacity. They said, hey, we need them to be a, a good reputation, full of the spirit. And they need to have wisdom. Here are the basic credentials. We're not just telling anybody and everybody, you just got saved, come serve. No, here are some of the credentials. We need these types of guys to, to be able to serve in this capacity. Good reputation. How does your community see you? When your name is mentioned, what do people think? What do people think when your name is mentioned? Do they look at you as someone that, man, they're a legit follower of Jesus? Do you have a bad reputation? The apostles knew, hey, they could have fooled us. They could have fooled us into thinking that, hey, they're super spiritual and they got it all together. But we want to know, like, is there something going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of? Do they have a good reputation? How does the community see them? How does the body of Christ see this specific individual? Because we want to be above reproach and we don't want to put someone out there serving that other people look at. You know what he did? You know who he is? Look at this individual. This was wise. What do you guys what do you guys think? Did they have a good reputation? Are they full of the spirit? This was absolutely crucial. Do you see the fruit of the spirit in their life? Do you see evidence that the spirit's working in their life? Is there growth? Are they growing? Have they stayed the same since you've known them 10 years ago or is there growth in their life? Are they bearing the fruit of the spirit? Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there faithfulness and self-control and all these different things? Are you seeing fruit? Okay, not that they're perfect, but there's fruit. There's evidence that the Lord is doing something in them. Do they have a love for God? Because the fruit of the spirit is ultimately love. Do they love God? Do you see an evidence of love, a love for God? And do they love people? Okay, because if they love God and they don't love people, the Bible says you're a liar if you say that. Do they have wisdom? What's wisdom? Well, it means a couple things. One being understanding. Do they understand the Bible? Not that they're a theologian, okay? Not that they have a PhD in Bible studies. Not that they have a Master's of Divinity. But do they have understanding of the Scripture? Why? Because we don't want just anybody serving, telling anybody anything. What if what they're saying completely contradicts what the Bible teaches? That's not good. Now we're leading people astray. So do they have some? Do they have understanding? Are, are they understanding the Scriptures? But we also know that wisdom in the Bible is the application of knowledge. Do they know, do what they know to do? Are they applying the things that, that they're learning? Do you see that effort in their life to say, hey, I'm really trying to do this thing. I'm really trying to apply the different things that the Lord is teaching me. Now, these were the basic credentials that the apostles laid out. Good reputation, full of the spirit, wisdom. We see later on, as time went on, uh, Paul uh, came up with uh, some more detailed credentials. And we see that 
uh, in First Timothy chapter three and uh, Titus chapter two, and he says this is these are the qualifications for a deacon. These are the qualifications for an elder or a bishop. The text goes on. I want to point out one more thing here in Acts chapter six verse three. It says. <clears throat> Whom we may appoint over this business. Okay, The congregation didn't choose the leaders. The congregation didn't choose. They had an input. They had a voice. And the apostles wanted to know what their voice was. What they had to say. But they weren't the ones that made the final call. The apostles had to make the final call. That was important. That was their responsibility. See the church? It's not a democracy. Okay, Nor is it a dictatorship. What we see how the early church functioned was, yes, uh, the church had a voice. And, and, and honestly, most of the stuff that happens here in this church is because of members in the church. Okay, That's why we got the floors done with. That's why we got a new sign. Like That's why we do a lot of different things that we do. Because somebody says, hey, I was thinking about this, praying about this. What do you think? And I'll say, hey, man, you know, like I've been praying about that, too. That sounds like a good idea. Let me bring it to the board. OK, and we'll look at that and, you know, ask some questions and figure this out. Is this a good route? Is this something that the Lord wants us to do? Is there unity here? Is there division? Are we on the same page? That's what we see in the early church. That's why we operate the way that we do. That's why we have a board of leaders to help make decisions that we that's what we see with the early apostles. Acts chapter six, verse four. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, we solve this problem. We get the servants so we can put our whole heart, soul, mind and strength to to diving into the word and focusing on giving people the spiritual food that they need and praying for them. Yeah, there were a lot of physical needs, but the disciples knew that the main calling that God gave them was to provide for the church spiritual needs. He said, preach the gospel and make disciples. And they said, hey, this is going to free us up so we can continually study the word of God and pray for people. Some people went, well, that's all they're doing is teaching the Bible and praying for people. Like, what does that take? It takes a lot. It's a lot of work. It's absolutely consuming. I couldn't tell you how much time I spend praying and studying the Bible each week. Actually, I could tell you how much time I spend, but I'm not going to because I don't want to boast in it. The reality of it is, is it takes a lot of time. I love what I do. I love that God has blessed me with the opportunity to to be a Bible teacher and be a pastor and be able to pray and minister to people and all the different things that, that he's blessed me with. But it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And it, and it gets you weary sometimes. The disciples knew that they had to focus so much effort and energy in, in, in prioritizing the spiritual needs of the people. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. <clears throat> in the saying, please the whole multitude. Everybody's happy with that. It wasn't like people like, well, I want to be the teacher and I want to be the person praying. No, they were like, okay, hey. We figured out the problem. We, some of us got to step up and serve some more. Sounds like a great solution. <clears throat> he goes on. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. 
So something interesting to note that all these names are Greek, okay, which leads us to believe that uh, there's a good chance uh, that these men were from the Hellenist side, okay, which would have been wise for the apostles to choose people from the Hellenist side because they were the ones that had the issue, okay? We don't know if they were Hebrew, traditionally, uh, any of that, but we do see some wisdom there. We also see that one individual gets a, a more glorified introduction, right? Who is that? Stephen. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Why? The author, Luke, he's setting us up. Because the next chapter, uh, the end of chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 7, is primarily focused on this man, Stephen. This, this servant who is full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, did so much in such a short amount of time for the kingdom. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. See, this is one of the main reasons that I think the decision that they made to delegate these tasks was from the Lord. Why? Because what was the byproduct of it? People got saved. Not only that, it produced multitudes of disciples. Because the apostles were freed up to preach the word of God, and that was the solution that they came up with, disciples were being made. Fourth point, good solutions result in making disciples. Good solutions result in making disciples. That's always the primary goal of the church. Okay, There's a lot of problems. There are a lot of big problems. There are a lot of little problems. But every problem we face in the church has to be filtered through the reality that the primary goal of the church is to make disciples. That's what Jesus gave us. That was the great commission. Preach the gospel and make disciples. You see there, it doesn't say there are a multitude of converts says there's a multitude of disciples. Why? Because Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make converts. He said, go therefore and make disciples. In other words, go therefore and make followers of me. Go therefore and make people that are going to be students of me, that are going to purpose to learn from me, that are going to love me and, and purpose to walk out the things that I'm teaching them in their lives. That's what the goal of the disciples, that's what their goal was. That's what our goal should be as well. Not just making converts, making disciples. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Once again, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and come to church on Sundays. Church is great. The Bible tells us, don't forsake the assembling of the brethren. That's something we should do. That's only a piece of it. That's only a part of it. The Lord calls us to a relationship with Him that doesn't exist one day a week, but exists every day, all day, every day. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm talking with Jesus. My, my whole life is wrapped up in the love of Christ. I'm doing life with Him. He's not just someone I visit occasionally. He's not just my buddy that I see once a week. He's, he's, he's my Lord that I purpose to serve each and every day. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what the church was raising up. They were disciples that were making disciples. It's always the call of the church that we would be disciples that make disciples. 
That's such a significant part of our walk that we're called to invest in other people. Now, I get it. You're a new believer and you don't know a lot and you haven't got there yet. That's fine. But there is an expectation. If you have any type of spiritual maturity or have been walking with the Lord for any length of time, that there should be an investment into other people to make disciples. This isn't just like my thoughts. This is what the word of God teaches us. We're called to raise up people, called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But look where they're doing doing this here in verse seven then the word of god spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem they're still in jerusalem why because that's where jesus told them to be if you remember acts 1 8 says i'm going to give you the power to bear witness to me in jerusalem and then all judea and then samaria and then the ends of the earth they didn't leave jerusalem why because the lord hadn't told them to yet they stayed where they were planted see we often try to get ahead of ourselves and we want to know what's next. What do you want for me next, God? What's your will for my life in the future? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? But if he hasn't told you the next place to go, that probably means he wants you to stay put and be where you are. Grow where you're planted. Continue to be a disciple in the setting that he's given you. They're still in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So apparently Stephen was on like the Holy Spirit fast track, okay? He went from serving tables to doing miracles, okay, in just a few verses. I don't know much how much time went by, probably not a lot of time, uh, but the Lord really had anointed Stephen to do a lot. He's performing miracles, he's preaching uh, with power. Stephen didn't have a long ministry, but it was a very powerful ministry. Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. Okay, so there's a very good chance that this is the synagogue that Paul was from. Okay, why? Because Paul was from Tarsus of Cilicia. Okay, he's from this region. We're also going to see Paul in this setting at the end of Acts chapter 7. So this is likely Paul's synagogue. Okay, which is crucial for later. But these people from this synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, it says... In verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They knew there was something powerful, something profound by the things uh, Stephen was saying. They recognized the power of the Holy Spirit. This sounds like something, someone we know, right? It sounds like when Jesus spoke, right? It, it sounds like a lot like when Jesus spoke and the people marveled and they were astonished. We see Stephen is mimicking Jesus. But it goes on, Acts chapter 6, verse 11. When they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. The religious leaders are conspiring against Stephen because Stephen is acting like Jesus. This is point number five, final, final point. Acting like Jesus causes problems. Acting like Jesus causes problems, Okay. At least it should. If we act like him, we can be ex we can expect to be treated like him. That's exactly what's going to be uh, happen to Stephen at the end of the next chapter. 
And that was something that Jesus told us that would happen to us. He talks about us being persecuted in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 10 to 14 in that section. I think 10 to 12 specifically. Uh, but, he, but he says, hey, don't be surprised. In other words, if you're persecuted for my namesake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. He also promised us this in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, sorry, not Matthew, I mean John 15, the night before the Lord's death, he says this, one of the, um, one of the promises that aren't the most encouraging, he says this, John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would not love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, that's a promise. The world is going to hate you. If we're truly following Jesus and acting like Jesus, the world is going to hate us. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't surprise us. That doesn't mean we won't have any friends. But the world. Jesus promises look going to always going to look down upon Christianity. They're always going to look down upon Jesus on some level. If we act like him, we can expect to be treated like him. He was hated. We can expect to be hated. Christianity gets less and less popular as time goes on, at least Christianity that's taught by the Bible, true Christianity. We shouldn't be shocked. I don't believe that Stephen was when these men began to falsely accuse him. And that's what they said. They conspired men against him that he was speaking blasphemy. In other words, they were bringing false witnesses to the table and saying Stephen was saying some things that he wasn't saying. Now we know there were some things that he was saying that were true, but we don't know all that was said because the text doesn't share with us. But this is exactly what they did with Jesus. Remember, they got false witnesses. Why? Because he was never guilty. He never sinned. So they had to get people to basically say lies against him to get a conviction. They accuse him of blasphemy. That's exactly what they accused Jesus of. In fact, that's the reason that he was put to death. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 64. Remember, Caiaphas asked Jesus, uh, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And what did Jesus say? I am, and you shall see the son of man coming in the clouds, sitting at the right hand of the power. In other words, he said, I'm God. Okay, I'm God. That's who I'm claiming to be. I'm not just the Christ. I'm God in the flesh. That's what he's saying. That's why right after that, Caiaphas tears his clothes and he says, blasphemy. We don't need anything else to accuse him of. He just committed blasphemy by claiming that he was God. But it wasn't blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus actually is God. So they stir up the people against Stephen, continue to accuse him in verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy, holy place and the law. The holy place is referring to the temple. Okay, the law, 613 Levitical laws. For if we, verse 14, have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So look what they accuse him of. They accuse, of, accuse him of speaking blasphemy against Moses, okay? In Hebrews, if you want to write this down, we won't flip to these verses. 
In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, it says this. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. He didn't, he didn't commit blasphemy against Moses by saying Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus was greater than Moses. He accuses, uh, they accuse him of committing blasphemy against God. But Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. See Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He's equal with God. You see throughout the New Testament, Jesus is God. They commit him of uh, committing blasphemy against the temple. That's the holy place that's being referred to. But Jesus said, I'm greater than the temple. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, there's one here who is greater than the temple. In other words, I'm the one for whom the temple was built. Okay. And lastly, he accuses them of bla- committing blasphemy against the law. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law. He fulfilled the law to a T. In fact, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He wrote the law. He's the inspiration behind the law. Lastly, in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, this is where we'll close. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. In other words, he was reflecting the glory of God. The glory of God was upon him. They, they witnessed this. They saw this. Oh my gosh. There's something different about Stephen. Now, this isn't going to prevent them from stoning him later on in the end of Acts chapter 7. But Stephen, being filled with the Spirit, preaching the Word, empowered by the Spirit, has the glory of God shining upon his face. Now, this should have reminded them of something. There's someone that they highly revered that the glory of God would come upon him too, right? If you remember, they just accused him of committing blasphemy against Moses. But if they remembered the Old Testament, Stephen is basically resembling that same glory, is reflecting the glory of God from his face just as Moses did. This is the last text we'll go to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 7, it says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, he's talking about the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious uh, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let me explain real quick. So, when Moses... 
uh, would encounter God, the glory of God would come upon him. His face would shine with glory like a light. Okay, we don't know exactly what this looked like. Okay, but that's just what the text tells us. Specifically, when Moses went up top Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, he came down and his face was shining like glory. Paul reveals to us that Moses, when he covered his face, he was covering the fact that the glory was fading. Okay, When you look at the Old Testament, it almost seems like he was covering it so that people could look at him. But what Paul tells us is he was covering his face because the glory was fading, meaning... There was a certain amount of glory that was given to the law, the Old Testament law. But that glory was fading. Why? Because the law was temporary. It served a purpose for a period of time to reveal our sin that we couldn't keep the law and that we were in need of a savior. But he says there's a greater glory that comes from the law of the spirit, okay, under the gospel. And this glory, it doesn't fade. It goes from glory to glory. Means it Meaning it increases in glory. He's talking about our sanctification. He's talking about our transformation as the Holy Spirit enters us and does that transforming work in us. It reflects through us. That's Stephen. God has done such a work in him. He's so filled with the Spirit that what's happening inside is being portrayed outside. And the glory of God is reflecting through this man now. This isn't making the religious leaders very happy. We're going to see Stephen preach a powerful message in the next chapter and suffer for it. But overall, in chapter 6, we see the church... Solve some problems. Widows being neglected. Church comes together. Solves the problem. Inspires more unity. See, as a church, when the church purposes to solve problems, get together, be of one heart, one soul, one mind, one strength, one faith, The enemy looks at that and says, I need to stop this, okay? I need to cause division. I need to do something, whether it's external persecution or affliction or illness or whether there's some internal conflict I do between them and their family members, whatever the case may be. The point is this, as I see the Lord continue to bless our church in an amazing way, and I continue to see this heart, this one soul, this one mind, this one strength, and us trying to look at these problems and come together and solve them all in a pursuit of unity, Striving for the same goal, you know what I see more and more of? Attacks from the enemy. And I know right now, there are so many people in this church that are going through it, that are in some type of spiritual warfare, whether it's illness, some type of physical affliction, some type of injury, some type of division with their family, their children, their spouses, their jobs. There is more of it that I'm seeing right now than I've seen in the last uh, year and a half. It's happening. Why is it happening? Well... I believe personally that the enemy is threatened, that there's a work that's being done. The enemy sees some of this unity and he's trying to inspire more division. If I can just get them isolated, if I can just pick them off, if I can make them feel lonely, if I can make them feel not apart, maybe I could take them out one by one. But what we see through this text 
is regardless of the efforts of the enemy to inspire destruction and division and all these things. The Lord uses the destruction to edify us, to build us up. He uses the division to unify us. So what we can see as a setback, what we can see as a trial, what we can see as a season of catastrophe and devastation, the Lord seeing that as you're doing a good job. You're doing it right. You're, you're a threat. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't bring affliction into our lives uh, by making bad decisions and sinning and all these different things. But what I believe we see as a truth in this text and what we see in our church is that the enemy is trying to divide. But at the same time, the Lord is trying to unify. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. God, we we thank you for your word, your truth. We know that there's an enemy out to steal, uh, to kill, to destroy us. Lord, but we know that you're a a God that loves us, that tries to build us up. And uh, Lord, there's there's so many issues. There's so many problems because we're people and we're flawed. And and we know we're hopeless to fix those problems without you, God. You're ultimately the problem solver. So I pray as we pursue you and pursue unity, you would help us solve the problems in our life, God, that there would be physical healing that happens in our church, Lord, that there would be spiritual healing, that there would be emotional healing, that there would be relational healing, God, that what the enemy's trying to do, Lord, you wouldn't let it prevail. You said uh, the gates of hell can't prevail against your church, God. I believe that to be true. Uh, Lord, so so help us to continue to see that. In Jesus' name, amen.